Welcome to SLP Full Disclosure, the podcast for SLPs by SLPs, where we deep dive into a variety of topics to empower, educate, and entertain. Join us each episode to hear from expert guests and topics that matter most. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already, and let's jump into this episode. Hello, listeners, and welcome to SLP Full Disclosure. I am your host, Jennifer Martin, and I am so grateful that you are here today. Now, an area that has been of great interest to me in the last few years is what speech and language services students receive in other countries, if any, sometimes, um, and how they're delivered, and can we deliver those services as SLPs that are living in the United States? Um, And I know that I am not alone in this and that this is also an area of interest to many of you as I have had many discussions with other SLPs and many new grads that always ask, what options are there for international opportunities? So our guest today is quite remarkable, as you will learn, and I will say very determined (laughs) because she was also interested, interested in this and she put in the time and energy to create a pretty remarkable experience for herself and for students in another country. So I am excited that we all get to learn today from Dr. Amanda Blackwell. But before we get started, I wanna give you a quick background on her so you have some background information. Dr. Amanda Blackwell worked as a volunteer speech-language pathologist at an orphanage in Guatemala in 2013, and now has been living and working full-time in the country for the last seven and a half years. Amanda completed a clinical doctorate in speech-language pathology and started the official professional association for Guatemalan speech therapists known as Somos TLGT, which has offered more than 150 continuing education hours over the past years to its members. And in January 2020, she began working toward a Doctor of Education degree at Murray State University and has the incredible goal of opening a university for allied health professions in Guatemala to improve the quality of services across the country. She currently directs the speech therapy departments at Fundal, and this is for individuals with deaf blindness and multiple multiple disabilities, and the Guatemalan Association of Down Syndrome, as well as providing teletherapy services for public school students in the United States and running an autism education social project for Spanish speakers called Luna. That's not enough. She's also part of the ASHA Pan American Health Organization Ad Hoc Committee for Ecuador. And Amanda serves as an adjunct research fellow working with five doctoral students in the SLPD program at Rocky Mountain University of Health Professions in Provo, Utah, and will be teaching in the Master's of Autism Studies and Master's of Speech-Language Pathology programs as an adjunct professor at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana, starting in summer of 2021. So if it is not evident by everything I have just told you, she is a lifelong learner. So um, welcome, Amanda. Thank you. It's so good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Oh my gosh. I knew that the second I met you and started hearing about your story, it was not one that that could not be told to others because I just feel like it's, it's really incredible. And um, I just, I know it was great interest to me and it will be to several others. But before we get into that, 
Tell us a little bit about you and what led you to become a speech-language pathologist in the first place. Sure. So I actually went to college at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana, um, and I went to college to be a teacher. I knew I loved working with children, and so I went right into the elementary education major. Um, and within that major, we have like the option of choosing a few electives, and so I decided to do this intro class to communication disorders, and it was there that... Um, this amazing professor, Dr. Susan Latham is her name, um, just taught us about communication. I mean, like the the real significance of communication. And I guess I had never thought of it as it is, as the essence of life, life as uh, Dr. Janice Light says from Penn State. It's, it's what connects us. It's really the essence of life. I mean, that's what it is. You can't um, exist without having this connection with other people. I mean, that's what moves all of us. And and I think um, I just was hooked from then on, um, just paying more attention to the way that people communicate. Um, through that class, I did a respite care program, which provided um, like babysitting for families who had children with disabilities. And I actually got matched with a family who had a young child with autism. Um, and their family of five at the time, they had five children, or I guess family of seven with five children. Um, and I just remember being so fascinated by Patrick. Um, and he was nonverbal or minimally verbal at the time. He still is to this day. Um, and I just remember watching him and watching his siblings interact with him and just this, this back and forth communication. And I just was obsessed from that point on um, and decided to add a major um, to my elementary education uh so I, I graduated actually as the first person from St. Mary's to graduate with the major because it was a minor when I signed up and we finally got the major approved for just in time for my senior year. So um, so that was that. I graduated in 2009 from undergrad and then just went straight through to the master's PhD program at UT Dallas um, and, and had this opportunity to come down here to Guatemala when I was finishing my PhD classes. So that's where that got cut short when I moved here and discovered a whole new world of communication disorders in a different country. Well, and I think that's so, I love what you say about the essence of life is communication. I think that has become so evident now during this pandemic. And it's such a good reminder that it really is, you know, whatever that communication looks like, it is what connects us all. And really creates a more full life. So I I love that that's what propelled you into this field um, because I couldn't agree more that it's it's just a really powerful thought and, and idea. And so when you were getting that the master's slash PhD um, together, did you have an opportunity to work in some different settings in the United States before starting in Guatemala? So I actually was in settings that, I mean, I worked with a lot with little guys um, in and around Dallas, Fort Worth area, um, but I wasn't bilingual at the time. So I didn't seek out opportunities really <laughs> at all um, to work with anyone who spoke anything other than English. I mean, I'm sure I had families there, but I worked with interpreters and and wasn't really connected, I guess, with the families in the way that I am now. Um, and going on a mission trip uh, with with this um, surgical brigade. Um, they're called One World Surgery. Um, and they work at an orphanage in Honduras called Nuestros Pequeños Hermanos. And it was with them that really my eyes were open to, to the different realities that exist in our world. Um, 
And then go, when I went back to Dallas, I just wasn't the same after that. I mean, I couldn't pretend like I hadn't just seen what I what I had just seen there in Honduras. And um, I couldn't stop thinking about the differences. It wasn't necessarily that one was better than the other. Certainly there's more opportunities and, and more trained professionals in the United States. Um, but but that, that essence is the same, right? And so I still had this desire to help people connect with their, with their world and the people in it. Um, and that's really what led me to, to seek out more opportunities. But, but to be honest, in grad school, that wasn't where I was going. <laughs> that wasn't the direction I was headed in, or at least I thought. I always say life is what happens when you're busy making plans. And so that's exactly in your case what happened. And um, I really would love for, because I want to learn more about this. And I know our listeners will too, is what, how did you initially, you mentioned the work with the orphanage and the mission trip, but how did you find out about it? How did you decide that that's the group you were going to work with? What, what led you in that direction? Um, so this family that that has the surgery brigade, they take several teams down during the year. Um, they were Notre Dame and St. Mary's graduates. And so I had known them before in undergrad and it had been an intention of mine to go with them on a trip just to experience that. I've traveled a ton. I've been to like dozens of countries, but I uh, hadn't really spent any time in Central America other than like on cruise ships and things like that. So um, so I actually had a trip planned with them. I think it was my first year of grad school and there was like a dengue outbreak or something, mm. dengue fever. And so it was canceled. Mm-hmm. And so it just took me forever to reschedule that. And it just so happened that this spring break trip um, when I was doing my my last semester of my PhD coursework, um, I just decided to do it because if, if I wasn't going to do it, then I didn't know when I was going to have time once I started working and all that. So, um, so I just did it uh, thinking it was going to be a 10 day trip, you know, just go and serve and then go home. Um, and that wasn't the case. So, I mean, I just, um, when I got back to Dallas after that trip, I just felt like I needed to do something with that. I needed to do something more. I needed to get out of my comfortable bubble that I was in, um, and so I just decided to apply to that same organization that that we had just visit, visited, NPH. It's NPH USA, the, the American branch of it. And they have nine different orphanages in different Central and South American countries. And so when, when a volunteer wants to serve, um, they have a year-long program uh, at, at these different orphanages. And you apply to NPH International. And so I thought I, I put as my first choice Honduras because I had just been there. But it happened that they needed an SLP in Guatemala. And so I said, hmm, I've never been to Guatemala. I don't know a soul there. I don't speak Spanish, but I guess I'll go to Guatemala because that's what was, but that's what came up, right? So I just figured it was a sign. It was something that's where I was supposed to go. I decided to take a year of absence from UT Dallas um, and with the plan to pick up my dissertation when I got back and, and keep going with the research and, and finish my PhD. But that year here in Guatemala just uh, changed me completely. I mean, I didn't, when it was getting near to the end of the the 13 months and I was thinking like, it's time to go back. I, I couldn't reconcile that. I mean, I just wasn't okay with it. So I said, I need more time and I'm, my work is not done here. Uh, I've connected with all these people. And now how can I just return to the life that I had before? It just, it wasn't making sense for me. And I decided to extend and stay longer 
Um, I did, I had made several connections at that time with people on the ground here. And so I found work here really easily um, and just felt like I was being introduced to person after person. That was a new opportunity, a new like mission for me to do, um, another project to get connected with. And, and it's just been that way nonstop now for seven and a half years. And I just can't imagine right now just dropping it and moving back home because this is my home now. I don't know when that happened, but but that's what happened. <laughs> now when I'm in the States for more than two months, or two months, two weeks, it's really my limit, two weeks, and, and then I'm like itching to get back here because I just, this is my home, you know? Oh, I love that. And so what? how long into that 13 months did you feel like your Spanish was at a level that you were very functional? I think people thought I was mute here for a long time <laughs> because I took a very, long time, you know, in that silent period where I'm just <laughs> listening and nodding and smiling and um, because I, well, I'm like a perfectionist. I'm obviously, I'm a speech pathologist, so I'm really particular about language and I didn't want to make mistakes. And so I would talk a lot more frequently uh, or a lot more, like I would just speak more <laughs> when I was around children because they are more forgiving mm-hmm. in my opinion. And I knew that if I said something funny and they like gave me a weird look, then I probably said something I wasn't supposed to say or I said it incorrectly. Um, and so they were really my my sounding board, literally, when I would say things and then get the <laughs> feedback from them to see if I said it right or not. But after, I mean, I really wasn't fluent in a year, definitely not. Um, I could probably get the most basic things said and people say entiende. People got, understand what I'm saying, yeah. but it wasn't like probably very specific <laughs> what I was trying to say. Um, but I would say at least two years is really when I was feeling comfortable with it. And now, I mean, my whole life is in Spanish. I give presentations and, but I can't really tell you when exactly that happened. It just over time and the patience of lots of people (laughs) listening to me still, but yeah. So now do you dream in Spanish? Oh yeah. All the time. I can't remember if somebody told me something in English or in Spanish because I process everything the same. It's not, you know, there's definitely been that switch and. And I start talking, I mean, I do the same thing. It's it's terrible. And if I talk to bilingual friends, I mean, I just go start a sentence in English and finish in Spanish and then go back. I mean, it's like, I don't know what I'm speaking anymore. It's just this huge mess. And actually, when I started the 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 SLPD program, I remember we were in class on campus in Utah and um, I said something and, and someone was like, well, since English isn't your first language, you might have. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? English is my first language. But they said that I even had an accent in English after. <laughs> you know, it was crazy. So I have no idea when all of that happened. But, but thankfully, I moved here at 26. And so I, I was still able to pick it up, I guess. And now people tell me I'm Chapina, that you can't tell the difference when I speak Spanish. So that's good. I love that. That is, I mean, and that's what a compliment that people don't think that English is your first language, really, Mm -hmm. because I mean, what better way to know, oh, wow, I really do have two languages that, you know, one, you may even know better right now because you speak it all the time. So, um, and I, I really think it's so important for, especially, you know, I try to, so much of what you just said are things that I stress to new grads all the time. One is that you know, or you knew, I need to do this now, because I think it's so easy for us to say, well, when this happens, I'll do this. And when, and and it doesn't happen, because then then life happens, it gets in the way. And had you waited, I mean, you're 
pretty determined person. So I could see that you would have still done this, but I mean, it maybe wouldn't have worked out in the exact same way. And you really just had such an open mind and you, you didn't, you know, it's like, okay, well, this was the plan, but I'm going to go off course a little bit from that plan. And by doing that, you created this opportunity for yourself that who knows, had you not listened to that inner voice and just gone with that, the course of life could have been very different right now. Yeah, it was, I mean, honestly, if you would have told me 10 years ago or even eight years ago, the year before this happened, that this, that I would be here in 2021 in Guatemala and I will have had been here for, for seven and a half years. I mean, I would have looked at you, I mean, it's just so far removed from what I thought I was going to be doing that, you know, it, it only, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if, if, if our listeners here are believers, but it's just, I really feel like this is the plan that for me, like I, there's no, um, I don't know. I just can't imagine myself doing anything else now, but I could have never imagined that I would be in this spot right now. So I just have to believe this is where exactly where I'm supposed to be and what, and exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. And, and it's what you said. Yeah. Just don't put it off. I mean, if you're mm-hmm. feeling like you're being called to do something more, or if you're, you've gotten this opportunity that you think, like it's something you might want to do, but you're not sure. Just go for it because these are that's what turns into your life's work. I mean, you never know. You never know the people that are waiting for you there, the opportunities that are um, being presented to you, and and the impact that you can have. It's it's incredible. Absolutely. And I think something else that's so important, because I'm sure there's were parts of you at times, many times where you were thinking, am I crazy or fear? You know, there's a lot of things that you could have been very afraid of in making this, this switch. And, but you didn't let that overcome and it all worked out. So I think just not letting fear paralyze you from doing things that could really be great opportunities. Yep. That's what they say, right? You can't grow unless you step out of your comfort zone. Darn it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And talk about stepping outside of your comfort zone. I mean, I didn't speak the language. I didn't know anybody here my first time in the country and I was committing to being here for a year. So it was a big, huge, I mean, that's the understatement of the century that Mm -hmm. it was a big change. Um, But I mean, you go with it and the amount of humility that comes with that is really something that I, I don't think you can really replicate that experience anywhere else because you just have to do it. I mean, putting yourself in the shoes of so many of our clients and families who are coming into this whole new world of autism or this whole new world of um, deaf culture or this, you know, like all of these things are such new experiences for them. And I think um, as therapists, it's a hugely valuable um, experience to, to put ourselves in a similar situation. It doesn't have to be a, a whole nother culture or a country like I'm doing, but even just whole new worlds like this, um, having that experience firsthand makes us be better therapists because we're able to be more sympathetic and compassionate and, you know, because we can say we've been in their shoes in, in a sense by putting ourselves into a whole new world. Absolutely. I think you're I couldn't have put it better myself. So I want to go back to when you finally said, okay, I'm, you did your work with the, the initial 13 months, came back to us, said, I need to go back to Guatemala. Um, and so what was your initial job when you first returned to the country? So I actually worked um, in a clinic with um, a gastroenterologist and pulmonolo- 
pulmonologist and a dietitian um, who I'd met through one of the orphans at the orphanage, Brendy, um, who needed to have a, a G-tube surgery to, so that she would receive nutrition <laughs> in a more effective way instead of aspirating on everything that they were giving her. Um, so through, it was through Brendy that I um, met this, this team of doctors, two of whom had, had done their residency in the United States and, and had moved back to Guatemala after that. Um, and so they, had, they knew what a speech pathologist was and what a speech pathologist does and um, really wanted me to join their team. But they didn't have a, a full-time position. It's just as patients um, presented themselves to, through the hospital or, or came to their clinic, um, that they would call me for to help with these consultations that we did as an aerodigestive team. Um, and then I also worked at the Antigua International School, um, like as a special education specialist there, just having the knowledge of, of how to help make accommodations and, and um, helping the teachers learn some different strategies that would be helpful for those students. Um, so it was kind of a mix there in the beginning and money was very tight in those first couple of years supporting myself because I had lived on savings now for a year uh, and a half. <laughs> and, and that's not so easy to do <laughs> for a long yeah. time. You can't do that for an extended period of time. But then through those opportunities, I met other people and then I started seeing private clients and then uh, connected with the U.S. Embassy and the State Department, so I was seeing I was seeing the children of people who were State Department employees living in Guatemala, um, and then I got connected to different foundations. So, like I said, it's just been one introduction after another that has gotten um, has just opened opened this whole new world of opportunities everywhere I go, um, and the people have been so amazing um, in wanting to collaborate. And I've met so many, I, I started meeting different therapists there. And then that's what, you know, all these things just lead to these new exciting projects that, that I'm so proud to be part of. And this is why you have no free time. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> this is why I said, I don't think you sleep. Yeah, sleep is in short <laughs> I'm a huge fan of cat naps whenever I can. Yeah. Well, and I'm, I'm curious because I know <laughs> even my time in the hospitals here in the U.S. that, you know, we go in to see a patient and it's, what? What are you doing here? I can talk. Why well, don't need you? Um, how were were you received? It sounds like you had. It was nice that you were working with doctors that were familiar. But did you find that it was difficult to try to explain to whether it was at the medical clinic or when you went and initially were working with the school age students to explain what it is you did and your job and that people understood what that was. Yeah, so I think the the scope of practice here is just um, more limited. Um, the idea of speech therapy to most people, like you said, means just talking and, and mostly articulation, right? So working on, um, well, they call them dyslalias here. So if you have an articulation disorder. Um, but like if they saw me at the clinic, they would say like, what is a speech therapist doing here on the aerodigestive team? And so it's, it is... It, it always requires me to explain a little bit more about the scope of what we do and um, the training that we've had. Um, and then, but, but the training really is the difference here. So when I'm talking about what I do as a speech language pathologist versus what uh, a language therapist does here, it really is a difference, not again, not better or worse, but the training is just has a different focus. And so, um, and certainly the, the amount of training that we receive is different. So in Guatemala, um, 
it's more an equivalent of an associate's degree. Um, they have a, a three-year program that's called a Carrera Tecnica. And that just means that um, it's a degree that they get on their way to a bachelor's degree or licenciatura is what it's called here. So they have three years of classes and those classes are based solely on the speech mechanism. I mean, that's all that, that we talk about um, in their classes would be articulation disorders. They do do some hearing loss, but as it relates to speech development. Um, so everything just comes back to speech. <laughs> um, and so I think that uh, like uh, augmentative communication or autism, um, genetic disorders, craniofacial, we don't, we don't um, get to talk about those things in a three-year program. Whereas obviously in the United States, we have the four years plus a master's degree in order to qualify to become a speech pathologist. And so there's just so much more that you can cover in that amount of time. But then it's also um, the training of the, of the professors where they are going to only have that three-year degree too. They might have advanced degrees in other things, but when it comes to speech pathology, they also only have that three-year degree. And so you can imagine how much we can't advance when our professors have the same level of education as the students, right? So no one is ever diving deeper into that material um, in order to understand it at, at a depth necessary, required in order to um, teach it to other people, break it down and really teach it to other people in a way that's meaningful to them. Um, we don't get to evidence-based practice. We don't get to, you know, those kind of research mm -hmm. things. We're not learning anything new. We're just repeating things that we've heard from years past. And so that's what I found has been the most difficult part. I don't ever, ever want to appear that I am, feel that I'm superior to the, the local speech therapist or, or anything of that nature. It's just purely a, a difference in the training, just objectively, the amount of classes, but also the quality of the classes because of the, the opportunities that my professors and all of our professors have had to learn more about this field and then teach it to us. So, so that's really the difference because the idea that people have here of speech therapists is a speech therapist that has three years of education. And so that's a big, big difference. Yeah. And I'm so interested in this uh, because I hadn't heard of many other countries, especially in Central America um, or anywhere south of the United States that had a formalized program per se. So I think this is really incredible that this small country has, has done this and accomplished this. And what, what led them to, to develop this organization? Do you know some of the background or what, what started this and got them interested in moving down this road? For the Professional Association of Speech Yes, yeah, oh, yeah. For the, the language therapists. Yeah, so actually I, um, three years ago, I had started supervising at, at an, a couple of places, and so I had met more local speech therapists and just realizing this um, discrepancy in what they've learned and what they need, the tools that they need for practice, um, and that it's nobody's fault but that there's this huge um, need for continuing education because going on that three-year degree from someone else who also has that three-year degree is not enough for us to continue learning and, and putting into practice things that are based on evidence. And so um, I just decided to like talk with these local therapists that I had these connections, like personal friendships with now um, and do these get-togethers where we would have, like the very first one I did was about AAC 
because that's something I'm really passionate about. And so um, we just met at, at an Applebee's <laughs> here in Guatemala. We have Applebee's. Um, <laughs> and we did, like, we asked for the room where they had the TV. And so I just connected my computer and had made a presentation and and tried to make, I try to make things super, super visual so that they're really easy for anyone to understand. Not that they need them to be simple, but that that's good for everybody when you yeah. make it you understandable. Yes. And, um, and they loved it and they were wanted to learn more. And so I was like, okay, well, I'm not an expert on everything, but certainly I have access to EBSCOhost and all of these places where I can um, download the latest and greatest um, scientific information. And I know how to do research. Um, so I just had them make a list of like topics that they wanted to hear about. And so um, we did it monthly in the beginning and then it was twice a month. Um, and I and I was the one that was making the presentations and giving these presentations. But then we quickly realized as it grew and and um, they were telling their colleagues about it and saying like, you need to join our group and we need to like share information. We're learning so many new things and, and all of that. Um, so then we made a Facebook group um, that was more informal that way. But we got more and more therapists that I had never met personally that started to want to come to our group. Then I would post in the bilingual speech pathology Facebook groups and asking for, for therapists who wanted to donate their time and let us learn from them with online presentations. And then there's several groups who come down here um, that have speech speech pathologists in these groups. And so we had them also present to us in person um, from various universities or, or mission groups that come down. So slowly um, but surely we 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 gathered this momentum and we decided we needed to organize ourselves like formally and, and create an association. So I started out as the president and then we um, elected this board of directors. Um, and then we applied, we like made the bylaws and the constitution and all those things that we have to do to form an association in Guatemala. And it was approved um, by the powers that be here <laughs> to be an official association. Then we started doing um, membership drives. This is all in the past year. Um, and now we have more than 50 active um, members of our association. That means that they have um, submitted all of their diplomas and all of those like official things that they need to have to be part of the organization. And then they participate in all of our ongoing capacitaciones, as we call them, or um, what is that? Continuing education workshops. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, and we've just done hours and hours and hours of continuing education and people are sharing with each other, like when they have a client with a diagnosis that they never heard of, they're not afraid to ask members of our group, like, has anyone seen this? What do we know? Can anyone get me research about this? I love to hear that. Um, or like, you know, what are some strategies for this person? And people are helping each other and sharing information and feeling like they're part of this professional community. And we're at a point now where there's the majority of the people in the group are people that I don't know personally. And so I feel like that is so huge because we're reaching therapists all over Guatemala now who want to be part of this um, association and who are wanting to learn more, who are recognizing the shortfalls of, of the education or the training that they've had, but are eager to learn more and wanting to um, improve their services and their practice and and continue learning as we all should. Um, and I've learned so much too from all of our speakers that we've had. We've had several university professors who have presented to us from, from the US and Canada and Mexico and Spain and Argentina. So 
We are so, so grateful for people who have been so generous and let us learn from them um, because it really is making a huge, huge difference here because all, every time that a therapist here stops doing what she did before or learns something new and it changes the way that she's practicing, that that's having a direct effect on these clients and families and ultimately improving their quality of life and allowing them to better connect with the people in their world, which is what this is all about. Mm-hmm. Essence of life all comes back, right? There it doesn't is. matter where we live. <laughs> and you're very humble. So I will say this <laughs> because I know you never would, but I think it is so incredible the time and energy and dedication that you have put into this because really and truly, when you step back and think about this, I'm, we all make a difference within our our pockets of wherever we land, but what an incredible accomplishment to be able to look at the landscape of support services in another country and realize that you've really had such a big part of introducing this service that really wasn't known before and how that ripple effect will take place. Um, And I just, even when you were saying about how those conversations are changing, where it's, and it, it seems too that in the beginning, when you were talking about, it was very speech-based, speech-based. And I can only imagine part of that is because you can see that. It's very you know, tangible to, oh, you can't make S, we're doing this. Now you can make S or produce S. But some of the language or um, other areas, pragmatics, those aren't as noticeable per se, unless you really know what to look for. Right. So I love that it seems like, their overall confidence is being built around, oh, just because it doesn't, that's not the first thing that jumps out at you doesn't mean there's not a need there. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And I think really the only sort of therapy here before is therapy that looks like therapy, just like Mm -hmm. you said. So physical therapy is really what people think of when they say like they need therapy. They're like, oh, okay, movement, you know, you got to stretch it out. You got to do these things. And so that's why here, non-speech oral motor exercises were huge. And yeah. And I've had several people ask me like, okay, but when are you going to do like real speech therapy? Like when I'm using AAC or, you know, using visual supports and people say like, but okay, but what about the real speech therapy? Cause they're expecting me to do the stretches and the whatever yeah. else and to get them to talk. Um, and so it's just been about educating people and letting them know mm-hmm. that, that we're more focused on communication in, in general, not just speech. Well, and you get that goal of we're going to blow the cotton ball with a straw. You're like, no. Yeah, I saw a lot of that before, for sure. (laughs) Please, no. Um, We're seeing that less and less, which is so good. Yeah, that's great. Well, and I'd love to just even pick your brain too. I'm so curious just about some of the differences about working in Guatemala versus the U.S. because I think it's so important, and you even mentioned this at the beginning, it's, it's not a us and them, everybody is not a, I'm right, you're wrong, you're wrong, I'm right. It's just, it's like what we say with, you know, it's not a a disorder, but a difference. And so I'd love to hear what, what are the school systems like in Guatemala? And, and what do those, do they have any sort of special education or support services in those schools? So short answer is no. (laughs) Um, they, the public schools do the best with what they have here. Um, up until I think it was last year or the year before, um, all teachers in this country needed what was to have a high school education. And so again, we've got that same problem. It's, it's the blind leading the blind where if you don't 
if you're like, how can you teach someone something that you don't know? Is mm-hmm. really the, the point here. So a high schooler going into a classroom where there's a child with a disability, how can we expect them to know what they're supposed to do, right? For a lot of people here, which I love, there's this intuition. Intuition. I mean, there, there are so many things that are just intuitive and there's so many wonderful, wonderful professionals who are doing things based on what they feel or what they have you know, it's just mm-hmm. in their nature to do it. It's not because somebody else taught them to do it. And so there's a lot of raw talent here. Mm-hmm. I always say that it's just been untapped because we don't have the the uh, systems to, the, the, the educational systems yet until I open the university to help them really develop these skills that they already have, this underlying talent that they have. So students with disabilities have the right to go to school here. They have um, a right to be in public education, but these public institutions don't have the skills to serve these people. And so what ends up happening is that they accept them in the public school, but then they end up literally sitting in the corner of the classroom because they don't know what to do with them or they just don't know. Yeah. Or they don't have the tools or they don't have the strategies. And so it's nobody's fault. It's just, this is, I'm just describing the reality Mm -hmm. here. Um, And so then, then when parents find that out, they stop sending their kid to school and then it's just easier to keep them home because when they go to school, they don't do, they literally don't do anything. And so it's not productive for anybody. So, so again, nobody's fault, but this is the reality that there are no special education services here in the public schools. And so that's the vast majority of, um, of schools, (laughs) the vast majority of of people with disabilities, um, they just stay home. Yeah. I, I, you know, I used to get some students every now and then here at the schools in Denver. And I, there's a few that will never, I'll never forget that were seven, eight years old and they had, they had been living in Mexico and had never had a day of school in their life because the parents were like, well, there was nothing, no, nothing, no place for them to go. There was no appropriate setting. And so they just stayed home. And I'm also curious too, because this ties into some of these families that I work with is there was also a, a cultural perspective on some of these, these perceived disabilities or physical disabilities. Um, and what do the people of Guatemala, how, what is the perception of, of if you need special support service or disabilities in general? It depends on where you are. Um, it's certainly not unheard of for, for moms to be blamed for their child having a disability in the first place. Like it's a punishment from God because the the mom has done something in her past that has caused her to deserve having a child with a disability or something like that. So there are certainly places where those families or those mothers in particular will be shunned, uh, will be looked down upon, will be blamed. Like she must be a sinner or she must be, I don't know, to have a child with disabilities. So they're really um, isolated from um, their support group in that sense, the families and their friends and the community in general um, doesn't want to have a relationship with that mom and, and definitely not the child. So, so that in itself is a barrier to accessing services just because of the guilt and all of that, um, that that's happening with, with the mother in particular. Um, and then just, it's not an accessible country. I mean, we don't have the Americans with Disabilities Act here. There's, um, I mean, I can... I can count on one hand the number of accessible buildings that I've been in since I've lived here. Um, and it's just always blatantly obvious, like brand new buildings that are being built that have five steps to get inside and nobody thinks about a simple ramp for that or 
where I live in Antigua, it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And so you can't modify anything, even if you wanted to make it accessible. Um, so there's just so many barriers to that. So when you make, when, cult, when the culture is built upon this structure that's not accessible, the people, even if they wanted to be accessible, it's just, it's hard to do that, to make those accommodations. It's always, um, it's always the will of the one person who wants to make a difference and then they might do that. And, and I think a lot of people have those good intentions. It's just the institutions are not built upon inclusion and, and the buildings are not built to be accessible. And so it's just, there's a lot of barriers that happen, but it doesn't mean that the people behind them don't wish for change or wish that things were different, but it's just at such a macro level here that it's intimidating to think about where to even start with that. So. So I had never even really thought about that piece of just even being able to access services because you can't physically get into the building. That's, I think that's something that we definitely take for granted here in the United States that you have every sidewalk has the ramp at the end or mm -hmm. that an elevator or like by law, they have to have those things. So, and it really does start with that. I mean, it starts with those levels mm -hmm. and because like I said, if you have, I've heard so many business owners tell me, I would love to hire somebody with a disability, mm -hmm. but where would I put them? <laughs> How could I, like, I can't afford to break down walls or, mm -hmm. you know, or build ramps or open up a, a walkway or what, I mean, like finding accessible furniture here, you would have to build it yourself. I mean, there's just mm -hmm. so many things that a good intention is not good enough to, to really create inclusion here. So that includes all public schools here and that includes the work setting. And so- there's just the barriers out, outweigh the, the good intentions, I think. And I'm sure it's it sometimes would be so easy to get caught into that feeling of, oh, there's still so much that needs to be done. There's still so much. And just constantly trying to remind yourself, yeah, but look what we've already done that wasn't done. It's But I'm sure it's easy to f go back and forth between those two ideas. It's really hard. And especially knowing... I mean, like being born with hearing loss in the United States is a whole different reality than being born with hearing loss here. I mean, you, I think it's almost harder knowing what these people are not getting that, you know, in, in the United States, first of all, you have the newborn infant hearing screening. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we know that you have a hearing loss from the day you're born. Mm -hmm. Whereas here, a child can go four, five, six years without noticing that they can't hear you you know and then and then once we do know we don't have a hearing aid waiver we don't have like these grants you can apply for or that the school district is required to provide you with hearing aids not only hearing aids but fm systems and somebody to teach the teachers how to use the fm systems and backup batteries when you need that you know all of these yeah. things that you don't even think about how number one how expensive that is and then what a privilege it is to be mm -hmm. able to have access to all those things because here when you're six years old, you're diagnosed with severe to profound hearing loss, then what? Mm -hmm. Nobody knows Guatemalan Sign Language. Uh, you're not going to be able to afford hearing aids. There's no grant program you can apply to to get them. There's one AUD in this entire country, <laughs> an audiologist who knows how to fit them, you know, like all of those things. Um, and you're just kind of damned to a life of, of not hearing people and not being understood, not having a way to communicate not being able to access education, not being able to get a job just because you have a hearing loss. I mean, 
those things really get depressing once I get going. With them. <laughs> I was just going to say, so, I'm like, yeah. oh my gosh, I'm, I'm, in, I'm going into the fetal position right now. Because- no, but, and it's the same for people who have any sort of like expressive communication yeah. disorder. I've had so many people that come down on mission trips here and say like, we need, I can get them an eye gaze system. And I'm like, that would be awesome. But the family's not going to want to plug it in yeah. because like, even if you purchase the $18,000 device and get them mm-hmm. out and everything else, the family's not going to want to plug it in because it's going to increase their light bill. Mm. I mean, like little teeny tiny things yeah. like that where we think the quick solution, and it probably would be amazing for this person. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that, but it's not amazing for their reality and it's not a good fit. And so you really have to consider, like even if we know what what the best solution would be or the way mm-hmm. to get this person connecting with their with uh, the people around them, it's pro- it might not be the best solution for this person in this situation, um, and that's a hard thing to swallow. I think because we think that you know we can improve their quality of life, but mm-hmm. you really have to consider all of these factors and be okay or accept the autonomy of this family and and say like, okay, they're saying that this is not going to work for them, and so I'm not going to pursue that, but I am going to pursue whatever. They're going is going to be accepted by them as the right solution for them. And it's going to be the best that we can get to. Even if I know that I think it could be better, if this is what they think is going to be best, then I've got to be okay with that. And, and let me tell you, that's been so hard for me in so, so many situations. But um, but I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little bit better of, about accepting that because it, I see the happiness for this family and they're content with that. And, and I see them connecting. And, and if that's if that's what helps them connect and be happy and follow through with, with everything, then, then that's the best solution for them. Yeah. And I, I really want to touch on this too, because I think you have so much just insider information in this area, because I'm thinking even, you know, I'm working with, I've worked with a lot of Spanish speaking families here in the United States and there's been so many instances, and I have really tried not to say this and to remind my colleagues when we say, well, but if you would just, why haven't you done? Yeah. And, and, and to be really careful about that. And I, I will never forget this family I worked with and the baby was born with Down syndrome. And, um, you know, I have all these recommendations like, oh, we could get this, we could get this, we could get this. And the mom finally just said to me at one point, it's okay. We're so happy with what he's doing now. He's healthy. He's happy. We're happy. And it really made me take a step back and say, okay, is she's exactly right. I I who am I to come in and say, oh, this, if you would only do this and you need to do this. And it, and it was, it, they didn't want that. They didn't yep. need that. And what they wanted and needed, I needed to meet them where they were instead of making them try to come to me. Right. Right. And I would That's love, powerful. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, and it was it forever changed the way I, I was, it was, it was a big, you know, wake up call for this area. And I would just love for, because I know you're working in another country. And so you are constantly navigating cultural differences, but what advice would you have for our therapists here in the U.S. that you know, the things that you wish you had known in working with other cultures, because I'm, very happy that the U.S. is becoming more of a melting pot. And so if you haven't worked with other cultures, you will. It's just a matter of time. And so what advice do you have for being sensitive to other groups, respecting their beliefs through the process? Mm-hmm. Um, 
I think always starting by asking the family what their priorities are, um, because that's where you're going to really learn what their hopes and dreams are for that, for their child or for their family member, right? Um, Because I think when we see a child, um, like an early intervention with Down syndrome, our our goal automatically is to get them through college and take, you know, everything else. (laughs) We're already thinking 30 years down the road, right? And we want them to be what our standards are or what our uh, perception of success is, whatever. Um, and and that might not be what the family is hoping for. Maybe they're hoping, because at least in, in here in Guatemala, the moms want them to walk and talk. I mean, like those are the one and two priorities. And if they don't do that, and if they're not healthy, if they're not eating uh, what the, you know, all the food that mom's, mom cooks, um, then that's not a happy life. And so those are their priorities. And so we have to stop looking at the, at those priorities as less because when you think about it, it's just their standard of what a happy life is. And so um, who are we to judge what's a happy life or what's a successful life or a fulfilled person, you know? Um, so I think when you ask families from whatever culture or whatever background they, they're coming from, um, what are their priorities? And learn their priorities and then help them reach those priorities. I mean, it's just you know, check all the boxes for, for what they consider to be their hopes and dreams for that person. Um, and it really just comes down to, to that, um, that autonomy, respecting what, what their decisions are for their family member. I think you'll learn a lot about it. I think, I think that's so important is, it seems so easy, but I think it's something we need to just be more mindful of is ask them, what are their priorities? What is important to them? And because I also have seen, because we are a group of, of many times SLPs have been known to be a little bit more type A perfectionists. And so we'll create these amazing, I've created this amazing program for you. And it put in a ton of time and energy because they think it's important, the SLP, but again, giving it to the family that says, okay, well, I appreciate this, but like, this isn't sustainable. Just, you know, like the eye gaze where we think, oh, this is going to change your life, but yeah, but is it going to work for their life? Right. And there are so many times too, where people ask me like what, what we need down here or our group comes down and they say like, we could do a fundraiser and get iPads for all the kids. And I'm like, that would be awesome, but we have to keep them at the school or at home because they, that person, I'm not sending any of my kids on the public bus with an mm-hmm. iPad because then we're raised, I mean, they're becoming a target and we're putting mm-hmm. them at risk for violence and theft and like all of these traumatic things because that's just not our reality, you know? And so uh, that was my um, my capstone project for my, my uh, clinical doctorate was seeing if there's a difference between a high-tech VSD application and just a printout VSD of that same scene, but just not electronic. And can we have the same effects by teaching and empowering the family members? And we can. Um, And so they're really, I think we just, we're used to using the latest and greatest technology. Um, But we have to remember that behind that technology is based on these principles of, of coaching and of um, autonomous communication. And, and like these systems are great, but you can also make them low tech and that can be just as effective and reach all those same goals and help that person be an autonomous communicator. Um, and I think we just, we just have to adjust sometimes our, our way of thinking and we're, and none of us are, 
are dreaming big for these people in our opinions um, with, with bad intentions. Like we're all mm-hmm. well-intentioned and we, and we yes. all want the best for the, this family, but it's really about learning what is their best, their idea mm-hmm. of best life for them and, and how to get, help them get there. Well, I think it just listening to you, I'm thinking, I feel like they've figured out a lot, you know, and, and traditionally these countries, they're, they're overall happier a lot of times. And we think, well, they don't have if they had, but it seems like they've learned that keeping things simple in having a simpler life is oftentimes can equate to a, a very fulfilling life. You know, it's like, what do you want for your kid? You know, here we are like, I, they're going to go to this university and then they're going to do this. And, and they're saying, I want them to walk, talk and eat. And that's, and, and, and I think we yeah. can really learn a lot from them. And it's not any less. I mean, we no. hear all the cliches of less is more and simple, yeah. you know, but, but it really is an adjustment in, in just our perception because mm-hmm. that's what it is. That's the difference. And, and you're right that, that people here are so happy and, mm-hmm. and we think, how could they be happy when they don't, when they don't even have hot water or, you know, something, mm-hmm. they have to take a cold shower every day or, um, but I think it's just our perception. We just have mm-hmm. to change that and and kind of redefine what what is happiness and what is success and what is right for this person. And and I think it just all boils down to that just just understanding that person's reality. Mm-hmm. That's really what it's all about. So I feel like I could talk to you all day, but I just want one last question from you: Is just what is next? I mean, you have accomplished so much. It's I as I was even reading through your bio, I'm thinking, holy moly! I mean, um, and just have given so much. You've really contributed, and really, just your tenacity has done. You've just you've done some incredible things. Um, what's next for you? Well, first of all, my my personal accomplishments now are not for me personally, like at this point, I'm getting this second or third, depending on how you look at it, doctorate. (laughs) Um, because I'm trying to do, I'm trying to pass the knowledge Mm -hmm. on, like, I'm not getting educated for me, not at all. I'm getting educated so I can turn around right away and pass it down to the people, not pass it down, but pass it on Mm -hmm. to the people, um, who need it the most and who don't have access to it. So at this point, I just feel like I'm taking, I'm milking this privilege as much as I can to get as much knowledge as I can to be able to pass it on. And, um, and I'm not just doing these things for me. Like, I'm not saying, look at this association I'm started, I started. Now I'm saying, like, look at what we're accomplishing here. We have a community of learners and we're learning from each other. And they're teaching me just as much as I'm learning along with them. And so um, it, it's not about this personal achievement here. So the next goal for us here is to open this university that will provide them the opportunity to learn from people who are experts in our field and and to be able to become experts themselves and and put this uh, the field in a whole on a whole different level here and be able to provide high quality services for Guatemalans with communication disorders and and really to um, just change it for generations to come. I mean, this is not we're not. Fo- I, mean, I wanted to start the association first so that we would have something for these professionals to come into a community that we've already created so that they can. They can yearn to be part of this community and be proud this, the day that they graduate and become part of this professional community. So now we're, we're backtracking and we're trying to go back in and, and get at this from, from the other angle, the professional education angle here, um, and prepare these professionals to become part of this community. 
So, um, so yeah, in the next five years, that's the goal. Get this university up and running. Thinking about starting with a master's degree first so that we can train these people to become the, the professors for the next generation of undergrads and then go from there. So we'll see. It's still coming together. I still, hopefully, <laughs> this is my last year of the, the Doctor of Education in, in Higher Education. Um, so I'm learning all about how that works, the world of higher education and, and um, helping to build alliances and and make connections with bilingual SLPs who are willing to take a sabbatical and come down here and help us launch and, and teach the, the first few cohorts of our of our next generation of speech therapists here. So Sign me up. Yeah, good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We give us spare bedroom. <laughs> I do. Come on down. You can stay here. Oh, well, I am so grateful that you are in this profession, Amanda. I know a lot of people are because of your work. And thank you so much for sharing this information. I I just know it's, I mean, I'm fascinated by it. I know others will be too. And I also, um, if people have, if there are bilingual SLPs that want to do some continuing education for your group, um, is that okay if they get in touch with you with your information that's on our in our show notes? Absolutely, we would love that. Okay, <laughs> I just kind of um, just take all of the like people give me a suggestion about what they want to talk mm-hmm. about. I can let them know if we've had someone talk about it recently or not, and if it's been a few months that since we've had someone talk about cleft palate, for, for example, then I'll then I'll just schedule a date, um, and and that's awesome. We would love that. Um, I have uh, no, we have we've created this uh, this Facebook group that's. Um, somos TLGT. Uh, so you can look us up there and so you can connect with us there. Mm-hmm. I have a, a website where you can contact me through that too. Um, we'll put all that in the show notes. So okay, cool. That, cool. Yeah. So get in touch with yeah. me or if you have connections with, um, universities or you want to yeah. help with that, I mean, that's going to be a giant project. So, mm-hmm. uh, or it is already. Um, so anyone with expertise in that or who has started a university program and, and wants to give advice or has visited a program in another country and and I and can put me in touch with them, all connections are good connections to have. So absolutely. And it <laughs> takes it takes a village, right? I mean, we all work together for the greater good and yeah. Well, absolutely. So we will put all of your contact information in the show notes. So please do not hesitate to reach out to Amanda with any of those ideas, needs, speaking, continuing education unit topics. And um, it's such a, it's such a worthwhile um, group to work with. So Amanda, thank you so much. We're, I just, again, I could talk to you all day, but I know that you are busy. So (laughs) thank you so much. This has been really fun. And if you'd like to get in touch with us at the podcast, send us an email at slpfulldisclosure at gowithadvanced.com. And each episode's show notes are available at the website, gowithadvanced.com backslash slpfulldisclosure. And make sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever you listen to get the latest updates. And if you want to give us a little shout out, make sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps spread the word. Also, special thanks to Jonathan Carey for producing this episode and Aiden Dykes for the music and editing. And as always, this episode was powered by Advanced Travel Therapy. See you next time. Mm -hmm.